0: You know, when you become a parent, you find that there are certain things that you are unprepared for. Chiefly, it's children. It's funny how that works. <laughs> one of those things is questions, questions that your kids ask. And, and after they learn how to say uh, dad and mom and other such small words that you've conned them into saying, they begin to question you. They begin that one word that haunts you for several years, why? 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 Well, why? Why, Dad? Why does that happen? Why are we doing that? Whatever. Why? I don't know. Why? Eventually, you just end up saying, because it's a miracle of Jesus. (laughs) Because it pretty much works. You know, like, why does Dairy Queen have hot fudge? Well, it's a miracle of Jesus. But then (laughs) they get to this point in their question asking where the questions have more of an agenda. And they don't really want the answer to the question as they just want to ask the question. You see, my kids are very good question askers at bedtime. Yes, exactly. So I'll pray for my daughters and I'll tuck them in and kiss them on the forehead. As I'm walking out, my one daughter will be like, so dad, how was your day? You don't really want to know about my day. You're just stalling. Last night when I tucked my youngest daughter in and I was about to leave, she goes, dad, dad. Did you say anything funny at church? I'm like, no, but thanks for giving me that one, right? One time after having put my daughters to bed for the, who knows how many times that it takes to get them to bed, my one daughter came out and she was just, I have to ask this question. Dad, it's such an important question. I need to ask this question. No, 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 we're done. We're done. We're done. Finally, I'm like, okay, what's your question? And she stalls for a second. She's like, how do you make stuffing? (laughs) Right? Right? She doesn't want to know how to make stuffing. She just wants any time out of bed is good time. So she just wants to be out of bed more. She doesn't care necessarily about that question. And a lot of times we ask questions that have a hidden agenda to them. And there's some theological questions that way, not silly ones like, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Right? That's just one of those where you're like, "I I I doubt it. I don't know. That'd be a cool thing, but I don't know. But questions like this. Can God do anything? And if so, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Or in the words of that great theologian, Homer Simpson, can God microwave a burrito to the point where it's so hot that he can't eat it? Right? There's, there's no answer to this question. It's the omnipotence paradox is what it is. There's, there's, you could say yes, you could say no. Both answers are wrong. Both answers are right. There's really no answer to these questions. Now, a lot of times when people approach Jesus, they had questions, and their questions had hidden agendas. There wasn't a right yes or no answer. As a matter of fact, a lot of times if he would have answered yes or no, he would have been wrong on both accounts. Jesus is asked 183 questions in the Gospels. He directly answers three. And not because he's being mean and not because he's being evasive, but because he knows that people are coming to him with hidden agendas or because he knows what the root of the issue is and he's going to answer what the root is and not necessarily what the question is. And so we're going to find in our passage this morning people coming and asking questions of Jesus and Jesus not necessarily answering until we get to this one specific question, which is one of those that he just turns right back around and he gives the answer to. So if you have your Bibles... We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 and Mark 12, if you want to grab one out of the pew there. It's on page 1596 is where we'll be starting. And Jesus is asked an authority question, and he's asked a political question, and he's asked a theological question, and then he's asked this question that kind of gets to the root of what we're going to talk about this morning. The first question is in... Mark chapter 11, and we see in verse 27 that these priests and teachers of religious law and elders come up to Jesus and they say this, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do these things? Basically, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, I will answer your question if you answer my question first. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Now, Jesus isn't going to answer their question, but By Jesus' question back to them, he's basically answered it. Because if the Pharisees say, well, it came from heaven, who was John the Baptist pointing to as the Messiah? It was Jesus. But if they said it was from man, they knew that the people would be angry because the people knew John to be a prophet. So they said, Jesus, we don't know. We can't answer that question. And Jesus was like, well, I'm not answering your question either. Sorry. And right, and it's not being mean. He just knew what they were, they were driving at, so he gave him that answer kind of in a veiled way. And then he tells a story that gets everybody upset at him, and he's good at that. Chapter 12 and verse 13, we get another question. The Pharisees and the Herodians, people who supported Herod, come to Jesus. Now, this would not be a group of people that would hang out. They had opposite agendas, but when it came to trapping Jesus, they were on the same page. So they came and asked Jesus a political question, a question about taxes, one of those hot-button issues, maybe especially this time of year. They said, tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we pay them? Judea had been a Roman province since 63 BC, and there were all kinds of taxes. There was a custom tax and a poll tax and a tax on the goods that you had, the land that you had. And these people hated paying taxes to the Romans, right? Because the Romans were oppressing them. It was like, here, here's more of our money so you can oppress us more. It just didn't make any sense to them. So they hated paying taxes. And the Pharisees said, it's against our religion to pay taxes. And the Herodians said, we think it's great to pay taxes. This is good for us. It's good for our society. So if Jesus answers yes, he's wrong. And if he answers no, he's wrong. One of those groups will get him. But Jesus takes a coin, right? And he says, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And they were silenced. This brilliant answer. And in doing so, he kind of reminded them of this dual citizenship that they had. But he didn't give them the yes or no answer they were looking for. And then a group comes to him, the Sadducees. Right? It's just this line of people. And I imagine Jesus is just at that point of like, okay, another question. Bring it on. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection because they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And nowhere in those five books could they find evidence for a resurrection. So they didn't think, they thought it was a ridiculous idea. They didn't think it happened. And so they came to Jesus with this ridiculous scenario to paint this picture of why this could not be true. And Jesus' answer to them was, well, you you don't know the scriptures, basically. You don't know what you're talking about. And they went away. And then we get to where we're going to land. We get to a question which is an honest question. We have a a teacher of the law. And it can seem like a question that's a trap. But I believe that it's an honest question. It's a guy who's standing there and he's watching. And he's hearing Jesus answer all of these things well. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. He answers directly. You see, this guy comes to Jesus and he's like, what are the things that I need to hang on to? What are the most important things? Now, why did he ask that question? He asked that question because religious leaders and teachers had gone to the Old Testament law and they had taken out of that 613 commands that needed to be followed. The list is extensive. It it ranges from ritual to ethical to moral to ceremonial. It's just all over the map. It's this huge breadth of of commands. And then they added to it 1,520 plus amendments. So if you're somebody that is trying to follow the law, whoa, you're totally overwhelmed, right? Because all of these things had to do with every aspect of every day. You would be absolutely overwhelmed. And so some teachers said, well, listen, there's major commands and there's minor commands. The major ones, they're heavier. They always take precedence over the minor ones. And some people said, listen, a command of God is a command of God. There is no difference. There's no one above the other. They're all commands. Some of the Pharisees said, listen, the measure of a man is how well he keeps the Sabbath. Everything else falls in line from there. So this man comes to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, please just tell me what the most important thing is. What's something that I can focus on? What's something that I can do? You see, the Pharisees thought that they were made right before God by keeping the law. The way that God smiled on them is if they did enough, if they lived a strict enough lifestyle, if they walked in this straight path long enough, then God would look on them favorably. The bad thing is, we know, is that this led to self-righteousness. And we know that this wasn't the message that Jesus was bringing. Jesus didn't come and say, follow the law and God's going to look favorably upon you. We know in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, A person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. It just doesn't work that way. You can't obey enough of the law so that God looks on you favorably, you're going to fail. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no law, that there are no commands. Some people have taken this kind of verse and other verses like it and said, well, you know, that means that Christians don't really have to follow any law. But no, that's not it. There are commands. There is a way to live. But you're not made right before God by following these things. And that was the message Jesus was speaking. But he was going to tell this guy, okay, here's what you can do. Here's what you can focus on. He begins with this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. He begins with this prayer that devout Jews would have prayed morning and night. It's called the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it says, pray it in the morning and pray it at night. The Lord your God, he's the one and only Lord. And then he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. This guy asked for the greatest. Jesus gave him this bonus commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, I want to look at these this morning from the perspective of behavior and belief. You see, the Pharisees, they were all about behavior, and their behavior never sank into what they believed. But the truth is, our beliefs determine our behavior, our our behavior rises up out of the things that we believe. Now, yes, behavior can shape your beliefs. And here's where I see this most often. I work with high school students and their dating standards. You see, oftentimes when they begin dating, they have these amazing standards. They're like, listen, we're going to hold hands like every other week once. And we might hug a little bit. But if they get too close, I'm going to be like, save some room for Jesus right here. You there and him here and me. It's going to be great. Right. And then they begin to cross a few of those lines. And then they begin to do things that they thought that they would never do. Well, when they cross those lines, they look back at those standards and they go, oh, that was, those, those were just rules. That was too rigid. I don't believe that anymore. I have freedom in Christ. I can do what I want to do. And then they cross a few more lines. And eventually their behavior has shaped what they believe. And we find this oftentimes. Oftentimes when we stray from truths that we've grown up with, stray from truths even of Scripture, and we start drifting away, we see that our behavior is shaping the things that we believe. But for the most part, right, what we believe determines how we behave. And so we need to believe the proper things and our behavior will fall in line afterwards. If I believe I'm invincible, I'm going to drive my car 100 miles an hour. I'm going to do reckless things. If I believe the world revolves around me, then I'm going to use and abuse people to get the things that I want. If I believe the most important thing is winning, then I will do whatever it takes to win, even if that means cheating. If I believe that I am worthless, then I'm going to treat myself accordingly, and that's going to spill over into all my relationships. If I believe the chief goal of life is happiness, then I'm going to choose happiness consistently over holiness. What we believe determines how we behave. So, if I believe the wrong things, then my behavior tends to be wrong. And if I believe the right things, then my behavior tends to get a little bit better. And it's imperative that we deal with things on the belief level and not just the behavior level because if we just deal with things on a behavior level, we tend to fall into the same patterns. I don't know if you've struggled with something in your world again and again and it's one of those reoccurring things that you seem to keep coming back to. Well, maybe one of the reasons is you keep just trying to tweak your behavior and you haven't really thought about what you believe about that issue, how you believe that affects you, what you believe that does to other people, what you believe God thinks about it. You're just trying to influence your behavior and you tend to fall back into that pattern. Our behaviors need to be anchored in our beliefs. That's why, parents, when you teach your children things, you say, don't do this because, and then you give them the truth. Don't, don't run into the street because a car will come, or if you're really dramatic, it's a cement truck or a bus or whatever you say as a parent. Don't do that because that will happen. Now, I understand, parents, that there are times when you say, don't do that. You don't anchor it in any belief except because I said so. Right? My parents used to say that to me all the time, and it used to drive me crazy, and I find myself saying that to my children, right, because I'm your father. Enough said. But we say, you know, don't stick the fork in the electric socket because you will shock yourself. Do not fill up that sock with cream corn and throw it around the house because your dad will get really angry, right? There's, you found those things. You found those behaviors in the belief system. Now, the, the Pharisees, they, they were all behavior. And it didn't sink into belief. And sometimes that's our issue as well. See, Jesus said, the first thing you can do, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. All your heart is is not being double-minded. It don't have divided affections. Your soul is that, that feeling, that emotion. Your mind is the intellect that you put some thought into it, that you seek after wisdom, that you seek after knowledge. Your strength is just all that you have, this intensity, this energy. It's sincere, passionate, intelligent, energetic love. That's how we're to love God. But let me ask you this question. How is, how is it that you view God? What's your picture of God? How do you see God? If God were standing before you right now, how would that interaction go? What is it that you believe about who God is? There's a lot of behaviors we could talk about, but let's talk about belief. You see, when most people are asked, we first say, yes, God is love. And then the second thing we'd say is, God is disappointed in me. Like if God was standing before me right now, his arms would be crossed and he would just be shaking his head side to side at me. Like you again? Is that what you believe about God? God? Maybe you believe that God's all about the rules, that there's just so many rules, which is interesting because, you know, when God created all of this, how many rules were there? One. There was all these do's and there was one don't. And then Adam and Eve did the don't. And then we got in trouble, but we would have did the don't too. And then Jesus, he says, listen, there's all these rules that you're talking about. I'm going to give you two beautiful, amazing, positive things that you can do. Just love God and love people. And yet sometimes we live under this, oh, it's just all about the rules. Maybe you feel like God is judgmental, that you're never good enough, that you always come up short. Maybe you feel like God is just always angry with you, that he's looking for ways to punish you. There's a cartoon here of God sitting at his computer, and uh, his finger's over the smite button, (laughs) right? So God sits at a very outdated computer but it does have a smite button so maybe that's how you view god like the passage of scripture that you lean towards are those like numbers 26 that says in the earth opened up and swallowed the disobedient people and you're like that's the god i know you see so often we live under these false narratives We have false narratives of, of who God is. Our belief is wrong. I'll be honest. One of the things I struggle with is this. God loves me based on my performance. Like the better I perform, the easier it is for God to love me. And when I mess up, the second something goes wrong in my world, I'm like, okay, God, what did I do wrong? It's as if God can do more if I'm on my A game. Like if I came to this service and I had a great sermon and it was insightful and funny and really pointed at the heart of everything, then God could really move. But if I came to this service and I fumbled and I was like, oh, right? And everybody just kind of stared at me, oh, then God certainly couldn't move there. You see, what I do oftentimes is I take God out of the equation and I put my performance above his part. And when I do that, it also puts my praise above his praise. And so I wrestle with performance and I wrestle with, with how God sees me and I wrestle with, oh, I just need to be at my best or God's not going to be able to move. And I live under that false narrative and, and I've been praying about this and looking back at my prayers over the years and I can see that I've been praying kind of along these lines for a long time. There's this kind of performance based faith. You see, my belief's inaccurate and it affects my behavior. And I know all of us have stories and, and all of us have been shaped by our families growing up and by experiences that we've had and things that we've read. And, and I don't know, you can't touch every story. But I know that oftentimes our beliefs about God aren't right. You see, the truth of the matter is this. God is Love. And everything that it says in 1 Corinthians 13 about God being loved, that's that's true. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. You see, God loves you if you've lost your self-worth. God loves you if you've lost your way. God loves you if you've lost your passion for him. God loves you. And I want you to hear again this morning that God is deeply in love with you. And I think the first thing we think is, yep, heard that. When I was reading over this passage and praying about it, and I kept praying, okay, God, what, what do you want me to speak on? How, what would you have me lead in? He kept coming back to this passage, and I kept arguing with God, well, God, that's, that's old news. They know that. Give me something like insightful and different and something with a twist and something. And I was totally performance again. Like, God, give me something that I can wow them with. And I just felt like God was saying, just remind them that I love them deeply. You are loved deeply by God. And I know you don't always feel it, but we do oftentimes have to separate our feelings from what the facts are. You see, what are the facts according to Scripture? Jeremiah 31. I've loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love I have drawn you to myself. I will never fail you, Hebrews 13 says. I will never abandon you. Zephaniah chapter 3 gives us this great picture of God's love. It says, With his love he will calm your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. When I ask you, hey, what's that picture of God that you have in your head? Did any of you have this picture of God rejoicing over you by singing? Because that's pretty cool. That's what it says in Scripture. 1 John 3, 1. See how very much our Father loves us. He calls us His children. That is what we are. We're not distant relatives. We're not third cousins. We're children of God. That's what the truth is. God loves you deeply. And I hear those things, and oftentimes I say, why? (laughs) Why Why would He love me that way? Let me ask it this way. Moms, why do you love your newborn children? Seems like a weird question, right? But go with me on this. This child has occupied space that wasn't it's to occupy necessarily. It has punched you in the gut. It has given you strange cravings. It has made you throw up. It's coming into the world isn't exactly pretty. And then immediately it starts screaming. The room's too cold. The blanket's too rough. You've carried this child around for nine months. You would think for just two minutes dad could hold the child. But no, the child only wants mom. It's all about mom. Never says thank you. Never cleans up after itself. Never does its share of chores. Will wake you up every night for the next six months. And yet you're crazy in love. Right? Right? You're crazy in love because that child is yours. And more so than that child being yours, that child is is you. It's your hands and feet. It's your eyes and mouth. And you are crazy in love with that child. You see, God loves you because you are his. And he cannot love you more than he does right now. And so hear again that God is deeply in love with you. I read one time that the greatest theological truth that we could ever learn is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so we have to believe that. We have to receive that. You see, when you can receive that, when you believe that that's how God loves you and you can receive that, then you can in turn begin loving God. And we have to stop living by these false narratives. And I think one of the first things the first things that we can do is just this awareness. I think awareness is key. I think this idea of like, okay, am I performance-based? Do I feel like it's judgmental? Is it punishment-based? Is that how I view God? How do I believe? I think that's key. I think another key is just asking other people. Start some conversations. What is it that you believe about God? How do you think that God sees you? And then I think one of the most important things is just prayer. God, reveal a clear picture to me of who you are. Reveal anything in my life that is a false belief. And I've been praying this for years because I've wrestled with this performance thing for years. And I, I'm i not through it, but I'm just praying, God, give me a clear picture of who you are. I want to know who you are. I want to see you clearly. What is it that you believe about God? Because when you can receive that love, then this next part gets easier. Because the second thing he says is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, loving God is invisible. It's this internal passion of the soul, but loving our neighbor is this outward expression of this internal passion. Now, I don't want to get caught up on love your neighbor as yourself. I don't want to get caught up on the as yourself part, because maybe you think, yeah, I do love my neighbor as myself. I don't really like myself, and I don't really like my neighbor. (laughs) Right? Win-win. Because oftentimes, We project on our neighbor what we feel like God is speaking over us. Like if if we feel like God is performance-based with us, then we'll be performance-based with our neighbor. And if we feel like God is judgmental to us, then we'll be judgmental to our neighbor. And then we feel like that's what they're speaking over us as well. And so we need to get rid of those narratives. And we've talked about that. So I don't want to focus on the as yourself. I want to focus on what it is that you believe about your neighbor. Think about that for a minute. What do you believe about who your neighbor is? You see, oftentimes we value people based on what they are worth to us rather than what they are worth to God. It's economics, right? Economics, a simple principle, says the value of a thing is only worth what it will bring. Which means if you have a collection of something, it's only as valuable as what someone would pay you for that collection. And we begin to view our friendships in such a way. Our relationships with other people in that way. You are valuable to me if you can bring something to me. If you take care of me, I will take care of you. If you bless me, then I will bless you. And people who don't do that then are outside. We've become mathematical in our relationships. What is it that you believe About your neighbors. I was reading this article about Albert Einstein. There have been many books written about him recently, and he was very much into formulas. He was a a rigid guy, he had a logical mind, and so formulas worked for him. And so when he got married, he gave a contract to his wife for how she would behave in their relationship. Right? Super easy. Just give the formula, and then she acts this way. Now, I'm gonna read some of these things, some of these conditions for their relationship. And guys, if you are yet to be married, this is gold. So you're going to want to write this down. <laughs> Trust me, I, you're going to want to pull your pen out right now. Condition A, he's got A, B, C, and D and a bunch of subpoints just to make sure. A, you will make sure that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. That I will receive my three meals regularly in my room. That my bedroom and study are kept neat and especially that my desk is left for my use only a good start right great b you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons this is good specifically you will forego my sitting at home with you and my going out with you <laughs> I'm totally like well what's left i'm not exactly sure but that's that's good See, you will obey the following points in your relations with me. You will not expect any intimacy from me. <laughs> at this point, right? It seems like he doesn't even need to write that. After everything else <laughs> after everything else that he's already written, we know that's not gonna happen. <laughs> this is like some moot point at that point. Don't write that one down, guys. You will stop talking to me if I request it. You will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I request it. That's so good. (laughs) And then this last one is this. You will undertake not to belittle me in front of our children, either through word or behavior. Like, I'm going to treat you like dirt, basically like you're the maid, but don't talk bad about me in front of the kids. Right? Right? It's crazy. You, you can't apply that formula to a relationship. But what was his belief about his wife? He, he believed that his wife was the maid. He believed that it was her job to kind of serve him in those areas. And so his behavior followed it. His relationship fell apart shortly thereafter they were divorced. Big shocker, <laughs> right? It was a nasty separation. It just didn't work that way. What is it that you believe about your neighbor? Do you believe that you will never see someone that Jesus didn't die for? Every person you look eye to eye with is somebody that Jesus loves deeply and that he died for. Do you believe that all of those verses that were spoken over us earlier about how God loves us are true also for your neighbor? Do you believe that people are immeasurably valuable? Because that should begin to shape your encounters with them. When you receive that love of God, when you love him in return, then we are called then to turn and to love our neighbors. I've been leaning into this passage for a few weeks, and I feel like God has been pushing me on it. And so I've started just saying to random people that I see, not out loud, in my head, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves that person. I'm driving my car, somebody at the bus stop. All right, Jesus loves that person. I'm driving down River Road, and the person in front of me is going two miles an hour. (laughs) Jesus loves that person. The person walking their dog past my yard and then doesn't clean up after it. Jesus loves that person. At the checkout line, Jesus loves that person. Jesus loves that person. It's starting to shape my encounters when I, that frustration rises up. Because there's certain people that we love easily, and there's certain people that are more difficult to love. And those are the people I'm trying to say, yeah, Jesus loves that person. And he's calling me to do that as well. He's calling us to do that as well. It's our job to do that. This past week I was reading a book, and it talked about Bystander apathy. And the definition of bystander apathy is this. The probability of help is inversely related to the number of bystanders. And it means this. The more people that view an event, the less likely it is that any one of them will act on that. And and you've heard stories about that before, right? Like in big cities when somebody gets mugged and there's all kind of people around that watch and see and nobody calls and nobody steps in and nobody helps. And usually we write that down to, well, you know, our moral compass is way off or we're desensitized to violence. And those things probably have a little bit to do with it. But social scientists are discovering that it's just that the more people that are there, the less likely it is that they will act because the thought process is what? Somebody else will do it. As a matter of fact, they went so far as to do a study with NYU students, university students who came into this room and they were filling out an application for a job. Well, when they were in the room, they started pumping smoke into the room like the building was on fire through the vents. Now, if just one person was in the room, they jumped up almost immediately and ran out the door to get somebody. Hey, the building's on fire. This isn't right. But they found when they put five, six, seven people in the room, they didn't move. They said, as a matter of fact, at one point, the smoke was so thick in the room that they could not see the applications on their lap, and nobody said a word. Because they kept thinking, someone else will do it. Someone else will say, someone else will make the move. You are that someone else. You're that someone else. When you receive that love from God, when you understand that you're deeply loved, you begin to love him in that way. And that outward expression is loving your neighbor. And it starts on this belief level. Our behaviors will flow out of our belief that God loves us deeply and that our neighbors are deeply loved by God as well and are immeasurably valuable.